host, Jenny Morrow, and I am excited to be back on air with another letter. If you have any questions, write your questions in to exmormontherapist at gmail.com, and I'm excited to keep going through the letters that are coming in. So today's letter comes from Repress Me No More. And we're going to talk about, throughout this letter and throughout the commentary I'm going to do on it, we're going to be talking about this experience that a lot of us go through in our human experience, which is what it's like to repress things. And repression can look like just stuffing things down and hiding them, ignoring or pretending or denying problems. But ultimately, even our aggressive or rebellious acts, in a way, can be a repression of the more authentic, vulnerable experiences that we're having. So today we're going to talk about repression more from the passive experience, but hopefully this will be helpful and ultimately you really can utilize it for either reaction, whether it's a more passive reaction or whether you find yourself trying to manage vulnerability with rebellion and aggression. So... I'm going to go ahead and read through the letter, and then we'll talk about it. Dear Ex-Mormon Therapist, I have been listening to your podcasts for the past few days and have felt so enlightened by some of your insights. I want to share my story and see what insights you might have for me. I was born into the LDS Church, but always considered my family a liberal Mormon family. My father fostered what felt to be a very authentic testimony. I am also somewhat shy and come off as a typical good little Mormon girl although that is not how I felt about myself. I felt I had thought about it deeper than the typical surface level. I went to college and joined the army where I had experiences outside of what the Mormon reality allowed for. I wasn't very active, and when I went back to basic training, I allowed myself a, quote, break, telling myself when I got home I would go back to being active. I was working on becoming active again when I met my ex-husband. He, too, was working on returning to full activity, and we struggled with going too far. We really wanted a temple marriage, and after advice from his bishop that we should have a quick engagement and severe pressure from his family, I succumbed to a short engagement, even though I was not truly ready. I had just barely turned 23, and we had only known each other for nine months before we were married. Almost immediately after our temple marriage, I began a feminist awakening and a faith crisis, I married into a very prominent Mormon family, think direct descendants from a prophet. There was not space within my marriage to openly discuss the doubts and concerns I was having. Then one month after my first anniversary, I discovered that my husband had gone to a hooker. We had gone through six months of fighting, all the time in a very dark period for my husband. He struggled with pornography and would divert his self-loathing towards me. I was naive and thought that all marriages were rough the first year, and that maybe it was something wrong with me. I had found a weird charge on our bank account and had asked my husband to look into it. After a few hellish weeks of avoidance, we reached the climax of our fighting, and I realized something was out of the normal. After confronting him with my concerns of how unhealthy our relationship had become, he told me the charge on our account was because he had gone to a hooker. We were living with his parents for the time, and I was in shock at this reveal. I went to talk with his parents, who immediately went on the defense asking if I wanted to get a divorce, although at the time I took that as their concern for me. I wasn't even sure what I was feeling, and all I could think was, I don't know, over and over. My husband and I separated, but immediately began marriage counseling with the hopes to repair our marriage. Some of the advice I got was, if I wanted him to keep working for me, I had to give him hope that I would eventually take him back. 
There was not the space to process my emotions without them being tied to how they would affect my husband. After four months of separation, we moved back in together. Hindsight's 2020, and I see now that I was not ready to move back in with him, but the combination of my intense skill for repression and the stress I felt over how my emotions were affecting his ability to stay away from the hookers pressured us to move forward and move in together. For the next year, we went to marriage counseling, and my husband went to personal counseling. We learned great communication skills for, quote, little things. We could talk for days about the everyday issues marriage brought up, but when it came to the pain I had for his betrayal and the loss of safety and trust I felt, we never got very far before either he would be angry or I would retreat. I always felt that he would go to a hooker again, but that since I had said I didn't want a divorce, I had to figure out how to make a life work despite that fear. I began finding distractions. First, I was obsessed over decorating our apartment or finding a house. Then I began to really want a baby. I thought we were in a good enough place that we could make a baby work and that I just couldn't worry that in five years it was likely that a hooker would become an issue again. One day, about a year from the first hooker incidents, my husband was particularly short and eventually admitted that he had looked at pornography. He was late for work when he told me so, and I told him he should go to work and we could talk more about it when he got home. He went to work and I started watching Jane the Virgin and got my baby hungry on. I thought that because he had been honest about porn that I didn't have anything to worry. Pornography for me was also not something I had viewed as sinful. I had a problem with the way he treated me after looking at it and his lying and secrecy revolving around his pornography use. I started planning when I would be ovulating so we could get pregnant. He came home from work. I found myself snooping on his phone something I did frequently. That night it was because his mom and I had gotten into a fight over my religious beliefs and I had wondered if she had contacted him about it. I found instead a call to a blocked number. When I confronted him about it, he said that he couldn't remember. I told him that he was going to need to remember. Eventually he told me he had called a hooker, but had hung up immediately. Again, I found myself in a situation I did not want to be in. So I told him to leave and continued watching Jane the Virgin. After my show ended, he kept trying to talk to me about it, and I told him I couldn't talk about it. Then I went for a drive and called my dad. I wanted so badly to hear that I was overreacting and that I needed to work on forgiving him and trusting. Instead, my dad said, that's the best news. Now you can get on without any guilt. That left me even more confused and scared. I called his mom, partly because I wanted to tell on him and partly because I wanted different advice and to get the support from his family I so deeply wanted, and to find a reason to stay. I didn't get that. Instead, she was immediately defensive and pushing for me to calm down. Throughout our marriage, I always felt that his family was ashamed of me. It was a deeper sin to have left the church or even had doubts about the church than it was for their son to go see hookers. I decided I wanted to sleep at my parents' house that night and take time to figure out what I wanted to do. I was blessed with a business trip that was taking me to Texas for a few days, which provided a great escape to think about what I wanted. I realized how miserable I was being married and that I was settling for a life I didn't feel hopeful for. I felt that I was just staying out of fear and a martyr complex. I came home and told my husband I wanted a divorce. We had our divorce papers in within a month, and everything was finalized within three months. Throughout this whole process, I feel that I have used my repression skills to just move forward. 
There was never a moment of making my divorce public. I just quietly changed my name on Facebook. I went on a trip to Bali to avoid Christmas with the family. I have all but removed my name from the church, so I have lost that community. There has not been a moment where I felt that I have gotten my story out. Only my very close family and friends know. While being married, my husband's parents did not want anyone knowing. Even his siblings still don't know why we were separated, and I'm guessing they don't know why we got divorced. I am a pretty open person, and I want to share my story. I want to feel authentic in my experience, but it seems that I've created this situation where I'm repressing instead of communicating and sharing. Then I find it coming out sideways where I don't want it shared or in a way that dismisses my pain and the severity to which I see it affecting my life. I reached the six months mark from which we were separated and began the divorce process. I feel now that the grace period my family has given me for sympathy is over and it's too late to want to be bringing up the past. Yet I feel that my whole world shattered. I lost a whole family I was so desperate to be a part of. I no longer believe or want to be a part of the Mormon church. For me, those were two key cornerstones of the foundation of my life. Now I am at this place, and I see how hopeful I am for my future. I have a clean slate to rebuild with a belief system that is authentic and sincere to my own self. I'm just not sure how to do this, especially when I find it so easy to repress and distract. I'm terrified I'll repress and distract myself into another life that's so far from my authentic self. I feel that's how I used Mormonism and my marriage, and it left me so broken. I don't want to do that again. I have been seeing a therapist, and that has been helpful in working through the issues with getting divorced. But as this therapist is not, nor has been, a Mormon, I feel that the advice from someone who better understands the Mormon paradigm and how it's so interwoven within the pain of my experiences Also, I realize this is quite a long story, but I would appreciate any advice or insights you have. Sincerely, repress me no more. So I feel like I'm talking directly to you, repress me no more. I just feel this longing to like look you in the eyes and to connect as I'm sharing today. So even though I'm talking to an audience of, you know, however many listeners there are out there, um, I want you, Repress Me No More, to know um, I really I really am wanting to also connect with you on kind of an individual level here, and I don't know if that's because a part of me can connect to what it's like to experience repression and to live out of that space, but if you were standing in front of me right now, the thing I would want to do is I would want to look in your eyes and I would want to say, I see you. And it's okay that you've repressed. It really is. It doesn't mean you can't have the life you want. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But um, there were a few themes that I saw in this letter that I do see for many people who come in and see me, not only for the religious transition work, but any kind of work where they feel like they've hidden parts of themselves. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But one thing I want to address that was near the end of this letter, you said, I have created this situation where I am repressing instead of communicating and sharing. And when I read that, I thought, okay, even if that's been happening, this letter itself is an expression of communication and sharing. And there's a whole community of people here who are listening. And probably many of them have also lived out of an experience of repression for some or all of their lives. And so 
I just want you to know that I'm really glad that in this moment you're doing something different than repression. Just in sharing this letter, you are communicating and sharing. And so you are capable of it. You have already done it. And I feel really excited about the potential and the possibilities and where you're going with all of this. So let's go back to the beginning of the letter. And I wanted to just go through some of the themes and the patterns and basically give you three ideas of what you can do to start to shift this pattern of repression. So one of the first things that came up, and you know, there's so much in this letter. I mean, there were a lot of different pieces that came up, but I really want to focus on repression because you use the word a lot of times in the letter. You also used um, that being one of the big fears you have is that you're going to play that pattern out again. And then you even signed it, repress me no more. So that's what I'm going to focus on here, even though I can see that there are a lot of different pieces to your experience and what's been going on. So one of the first things I noticed was when you talked about going into marriage counseling with you and your husband, and you said, when it came to the pain I had for his betrayal and the loss of safety and trust I felt, we never got very far before either he would be angry or I would retreat. So that part kind of stood out as a general theme for those of us who have used repression as a kind of coping mechanism, as a kind of survival strategy. Often on the other side of it is anger or disappointment or some kind of intense emotion. And we're not quite sure how to hang with that, and so we retreat. And that's okay. You know, it might make a lot of sense that we don't know how to hang with it, The person who's feeling the anger or the disappointment may not know how to hang with it themselves, um, nor how to communicate it in a way that is more safe. And so we just play this pattern out and it can happen over and over and over. So one of the first steps to beginning to shift this pattern is to start to practice learning how to sit with disappointment and anger. And it's really nice if you can find a friend or a partner or family member who's also willing to learn to sit with their own anger and disappointment. And the two of you could maybe um, go into a coach or, you know, continue doing some of the therapy work you're doing around this, where you can actually practice being with another person's anger and disappointment. And they can practice being with their anger and disappointment without turning the blame towards you. Because when we have this cycle going on, it's really tough to feel safe. And it doesn't mean you can't do the work all on your own on some level, like theoretically, but at some point you're going to have to practice it with someone who's genuinely angry and or disappointed. And so, you know, again, repression is a survival strategy. It's literally kind of coming out of that limbic system of our brain. And so even though we'd love to not repress and we'd love to stand up for ourselves and we'd love to be more open, if that limbic system lights up, with anxiety or fear that if someone's angry or disappointed, then we're going to be rejected. That part's just so strong. And so what we can start to do is we can start to practice breathing through it. We can start to practice noticing how intense it is for us when we feel like someone might be disappointed or might be angry, even when maybe they wouldn't be, but especially in a situation where they're playing that out and they are playing out the angry and um, disappointed side. I'm using the word disappointment. That wasn't really in this part of the letter, but you used that he would be angry. You didn't say he'd be disappointed, but I'm using the word disappointment because I'm sensing that that's one of the other intense emotions that people can be really scared of. 
So I want to give you just a couple of ideas for how to sit with disappointment and anger as you're moving forward. And so one of the ways is you can start with your own disappointment and anger. You can start practicing really being honest and noticing when you actually do feel disappointed and angry. And this became really important for me because anger was such a scary thing to feel. And I was so disassociated from my own anger. And it wasn't until I could start to feel my anger that I started to trust that anger doesn't have to be unsafe. Anger can be just a feeling that's a part of a process for learning about what we need to change. But for so long, anger was so scary to me in myself and scary in other people that I would do anything to avoid anger, including repression. And I wouldn't just repress from other people, I would also repress from myself. So it was part of the dissociation or the disconnect Um, from my own anger, where I genuinely just would say things like, well, I'm just not an angry person, as though there are people who are, um, who, you know, in their core and their identity are angry people. You know, I no longer believe that. I now know anger is a feeling. And if we can learn how to be aware when anger is present for us, then we can get a lot of good information. So I would say start really noticing in your own life when you feel angry Start noticing in your own life when you feel disappointed. See if you can take a lot of deep breaths around it when it comes up. See if you can sit with it with a lot of compassion and gentleness and acknowledging, wow, this is what it feels like to be angry. This is what it feels like to experience disappointment. And notice when that comes up, when anger rises or when disappointment rises, notice the reaction you have in terms of wanting to push someone else away or reject them. When you might have noticed this a little bit, in terms of your husband choosing to connect with a hooker, right? So the anger comes up, we don't know what to do about it. And you were going to different people trying to get clarity. You know, should I stay with him? Should I not stay with him? Someone tell me what to do. Because there wasn't, there wasn't the skill yet, the skill set yet for being able to feel the anger deeply and being able to say, okay, in what way is this anger related to my deepest desires and longing for a relationship of commitment, fidelity, safety, connection? And in what way can I use this anger to fuel the possibility to rebuild that with my husband? Because man, yeah, especially, you know, going into a therapy situation and learning how to talk about the little things, but not learning how to stay present to the deep feelings, to the deep anger of feeling betrayed. And so I'm really sorry that wasn't available to you yet. And I say that giving that same compassion to myself and to others that, you know, we can only go as far in our relationships as we can go, as far as our skill set can take us. And, you know, ultimately both people have to do the work, but it has to often start with one person having the skill set or finding someone who can teach it. And sometimes we just don't come across that resource yet. And so we just go back into the repression. So that would be one idea would be learning to sit with your own disappointment and anger, learning how to start to tap into it and feel it And notice your own desire to reject someone when you're disappointed or angry. And see if you can find someone to help you practice a different way. See if you can find someone to help you learn how to talk about your anger and your disappointment in a way that is vulnerable, but can open up a possibility for a deeper connection. And it may mean that the relationship needs to change form, but it may also provide opportunity for a deepening and also a... uh, Uh, staying together in the same kind of form of relationship, a friendship, a spousal relationship, whatever it might be. So um, that's one piece. 
And then the other piece is going to be practicing doing that with other people, learning how to stay present with their disappointment and anger, rather than just going back into retreat, rather than going back into withdrawal and repression. So there were a couple phrases that I used as I was first practicing this. So one of the phrases was, I give this person permission to be angry. I give dot, dot, dot permission to feel disappointed with me. It was starting to create space that it's okay for someone to feel disappointed with me. It's okay for someone to feel angry with me. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to reject me. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have to stay in the same situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that our relationship is always going to suck. So you'll want to start watching what are the stories that go on when someone is angry or disappointed with me. What do I believe is going to happen if someone is angry or disappointed with me? And see if you can start to practice this whole new kind of thing, which is giving someone permission to actually be angry or disappointed with you. And again, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong or what happened here necessarily. Because again, right now what we're working on is how can you shift this pattern of repression? And as long as you feel scared of, of anger, you will continue to repress. And so that's not a bad thing. Again, it's just a survival tactic. But one of the first steps to changing this is going to be learning how to sit with your own anger without rejecting yourself or rejecting other people, and then learning how to sit with someone else's anger. So watch the stories. If I'm angry, what am I scared is going to happen? If someone else is angry, what am I scared is going to happen? And start to remind yourself that just because you feel that way doesn't mean those stories are true. And it might be that the anger you feel or the anger someone else feels has a lot of benefit, has something it can bring to the table. So even though your husband was the one who was going to see hookers and even though he was the one, you know, feeling angry and we can look at that and we can have all sorts of judgment about it. Again, my sense is his anger was bringing something to the table. It was probably something for him about him to help him become a little bit more authentic, especially if he's living with a family or if he comes from a family where it's not okay to think and believe differently um, or where there's that fear that it's not okay that I'll be disowned or rejected if that happens. And there's all sorts of things that can keep us um, disconnected from ourselves. My sense is your husband's anger that he was feeling in those moments with you um, was something for him about him. And over time, if we can start to be with someone else's anger, it can it can really assist in transformation for the relationship because it assists in transformation for that person. So that would be one of the first steps. Okay, let's look at the uh, second piece that came up as I was reading this letter. Okay, so actually a little earlier in the letter, you said, we were living with his parents for the time, and as I was in shock at this reveal, I went to talk with his parents, who immediately went on the defense, asking if I wanted to get a divorce, although at the time I took that as their concern for me. I wasn't even sure what I was feeling, and all I could think was, I don't know, over and over. So one of the other thoughts that kind of came up as I was reading this, and I can kind of feel it through my body now, which is sort of a no wonder, like, oh, no wonder we repress. Sometimes we just haven't yet found safe people to talk to. And so even here, you know, it sounds like the longing was trying to get support, was trying to get help, was trying to find a way to process through this whole experience and see if there was potential to heal the relationship. And his parents didn't know how to do that for you. And it sounds like you just didn't have that resource available yet. So, you know, the first thing that came up was kind of the skill, the skill to sit with our own anger and disappointment 
And then also the skill to then be able to sit with another's anger and disappointment so that we don't have to retreat or start to repress. So the first thing that kind of struck me was, okay, we need to learn to build that skill if we want to change the pattern of repression. And then the second piece is sort of based on community or connections with safe people. And my sense is you just did not have that available yet. So the people that you hoped could be safe or wanted to be safe, they just weren't. And it probably added to a lot of the confusion and the sadness. But I loved how you talked about at some point being able to go on a business trip. You said, I was blessed with a business trip that was taking me to Texas for a few days, which provided a great escape to think about what I wanted. And, you know, right there, it's like, just that awareness that while we can go to other people for advice and support, and you're writing in a letter today to me so I can give you advice and support, and hopefully it's helpful on some level, but ultimately, even when, once we get advice from others and support from others, ultimately we have to come back inside of ourselves and say, okay, what information is this giving me and what is it I really want? And you mentioned that you realized how miserable you were being married and that you were settling for a life you didn't feel hopeful for. You felt that you were staying out of fear in a martyr complex. I mean, as I read that, I'm like, oh, I just kind of, I feel good in the sense that you were able to connect with something that was true for you. And, you know, I'm not saying in a different situation that there couldn't also be a part of you that um, wanted to try to work through it and also felt um, curious what potential was there. But when you just got honest with yourself, you know, you, you acknowledged and you're able to get clear on this is where I'm at with this right now. And so... Building a community of people that we feel safe to talk to becomes essential for adjusting the pattern of repression. And just like the first idea about sitting with disappointment and anger, ultimately the second one also starts with ourself. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who can teach us, who can model this, who can start to be safe for us. But it's just so tricky because if we're not safe yet for ourselves, then we're always vulnerable to someone not being safe for us and us putting too much stock or validation into their words and ignoring our own feelings. Um, And so it becomes this really fine balance between learning from those who've gone on before and who've maybe stumbled and can give us ideas and say, hey, watch out for this or this or this, but then also being able to say, okay, where is my experience like that other's? And where is it different? And so where does this advice work? And where is it applicable? And where is it not? And sometimes all we can do is go through life and have our experiences to get more and more information about that. But the good thing is, even as we're going through that, we can practice this piece of building a community of people that are safe to talk to by practicing being safe with ourselves. And, you know, there's all sorts of techniques and strategies you can work on here. One of my favorite techniques is that I no longer beat up any of my emotions. I mean, I want to sometimes. I get scared sometimes. Maybe this emotion is going to cause me problems or ruin a relationship, or maybe my anger or my anxiety is going to keep me from the the relationship I really want here, the friendship, the, the family connection I really want. You know, I have all sorts of judgment towards my anxiety still and towards my anger. But one of my favorite practices is to practice noticing my fear of it, and starting to be more safe for myself. Okay, maybe I am making a big deal out of this thing. Maybe I am overreacting, but the feeling in me is real, and it has information. And so if I 
deny it, stuff it, pretend, ignore, I'm going to miss something that's important. So yeah, I may not want to overreact. I may not want to take it to that level, but I may need to keep sitting with it and just keep myself open, open, open to anyone who can help me gather the information about what this feeling means for me. There are things I've opened up and that are just kind of sitting there waiting for the right support. And maybe they've been sitting there for a year because I've opened them up and I haven't necessarily found the answer yet. Maybe something I've felt hurt or disappointed by or angry about. And a part of me wants to just stuff it away and not feel it and not have that and just pretend like I'm overreacting. But, you know, I've been through the process enough to know that doesn't help. And so, yeah, there's times we kind of open up parts to our own self and we don't really know how to understand it yet or how to see it fully and completely for what the experience was. Um, But, you know, at least we can hold it open kind of in our peripheral. And then I will set the intention to just be aware of it and to look for resources and be aware of resources that can help me understand this more fully and completely. And so the intention can be helpful. And then what happens is we start to connect with people, with authors, with mentors, with podcasters, wink, wink, with friends, with dancers, with artists, you know, with anyone who can somehow create a safe space for us to see more clearly what our feelings about things are really about. And, you know, this is a big one. In terms of infidelity, there can be so much to process there. And so it can be very, very confusing. And my sense is you don't want to close your eyes to that process. You want to get more and more clear about How does infidelity happen? Why does it happen? And I'm not saying we can always control it or stop it or change it. You know, if somebody chooses to be unfaithful, they they choose to be unfaithful. That's the way that they're coping and dealing with something they maybe don't know how to cope and deal with. My sense is that's a part, a big part of what was going on after the whole situation happened. When you went and talked to his family, when you went and talked to your dad, you know, it's this party that's trying to understand what the hell happened. You were trying to understand that story. And again, my sense is you just didn't have anyone around yet who could go there fully with you. And that's okay. Again, it's, it's all a process. So taking a deep breath and knowing, okay, when feelings come up, how can I start being a safe person first and foremost? Always, always, always for myself. How can I never, ever betray myself again? How can I never, ever beat down or shut out one of my own emotional experiences again? So stay open to people, again, whether it's someone you're directly connecting with or whether it's someone you're connecting with over a book they've written or something you've heard someone say. Stay open to people who can be safe for you in ways you haven't experienced yet. The last thing that came up and the third thing that I want to talk about in terms of changing the pattern of repression is to begin building a relationship with repression itself. So again, one of the things that we want to do when we think something has destroyed our life on a certain level, or when we think it's been the thing that's caused us problems, so if it feels like, gosh, repression is the problem, repression's what caused me to get into this marriage in the first place, repression's what dot, dot, dot. So, you know, we see repression as the enemy, and that's fine. It makes a lot of sense why we see it that way. But my sense is repression just is what it is. It's just where you were. So I'm not sure that repression caused those things. 
as much as those things were a mirror of where you were, and repression itself was a mirror of where you were, it was just all a mirror of your own developmental process. And so starting to build a relationship with repression where it doesn't have to feel like it's going to have control over you, it doesn't feel so scary anymore, becomes really, really important. And one of the best ways to do that is to start to build a sort of honoring compassion and gratitude for our repression. So one of my suggestions is writing out 50 benefits to whatever the struggle is. So the technique here is to take out a piece of paper and at the top write 50 benefits to repression. I want you to start to write down what are the benefits that I have gained from living a repressed life? What are the benefits I have gained from repression? One of the benefits might have been it kept me safe when I didn't have other skills. It might have been repression was a way to guard my inner world so that I could maintain some connection with it when the people I was with weren't quite sure how to hold my inner world yet. Another benefit of living a repressed life, it's helped you learn what you need from people in order to be feel safer. So again, I don't think repression created the situation as much as repression was just a reflection of where you were. And that once we bring that conscious, once we go, oh, oh, I can see that where I was, was living out of a place of repression because I didn't have the skill set yet or the community built up, then we can start to say, do I still need these 50 benefits to living a repressed life? Or can I start to build safety in other ways so that I can start to open up more? Again, repression and any of our masks and any of our coping mechanisms are in a way our friends. And as soon as we become aware of them, my suggestion is that we'll find a lot of joy and fulfillment in working our way into a different way of managing the situation. But again, I don't know that there could have been another option at that point. And so for you to start to change that pattern, it often helps to start to create a relationship of honor so that you can start to thank your oppression for what it's done for you and let it know you don't, you don't need to stay here anymore. You don't need to do this for me anymore. I've learned some other ways. And I kind of imagine repression looking at us and feeling relieved even maybe. Like, oh, okay, I don't, have to, I don't have to protect you anymore. I don't have to keep you safe anymore. What a relief. You can take care of that on your own. Repression itself is not the enemy. Repression is just the reflection. And we get to use that reflection to help us grow and change. So 50 benefits to living a repressed life. And it's right out 10 a week. So I've, I've done 50 benefits before for something. And it took me about six weeks. And it was extremely helpful for me. Um, but it can feel a little confusing, like 50 benefits? I can barely even think of one or two. So some part of me is wanting to offer more ideas of benefits. But I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to ask anyone who's listening who can think of a benefit to having lived a repressed life or a benefit to repression. I want you to go to www.askanexmormontherapist and leave a comment with this episode's text clip. And repress no more. Go there and see if anyone's left any comments. A lot of people have subscribed on iTunes, and that's how they listen to this. So there's not a lot of people going online or leaving comments. But but if you're listening and you have an idea, please do. Please add an idea for repress no more. And especially if you've experienced repression yourself, this can be a really good practice. Sit down yourself and write down five to ten benefits of repressing or living a repressed life. So those are my tips and ideas for today. 
I hope that they help. And I do know that you can change this pattern of repression by bringing these things more and more into your awareness with more and more compassion and knowing it just is what it was. It's all part of the process of you evolving and getting where you want to go. And so none of it needs to be beat up or seen as the enemy. And I hope for all of you out there who've ever experienced repression in any kind of form, passive repression or aggressive repression, I hope that you also get a chance to keep moving towards a more open and lived, connected life. And here's to a community that supports that. So thanks for listening. Until next time.